0: So we are starting a new series today, and it's a series on Matthew's gospel. And whenever I come to a, to a, a new gospel, um, actually, I have to say, this is the first time going back and redoing Matthew. So our pattern in Thailand has been to do a gospel, to do an Old Testament, to do a New Testament book. And I've actually now, we've been around long enough, I've preached through all four gospels, and I'm coming back and doing Matthew again, which is really exciting for me. Because whenever we do a book of the Bible, um, I try to keep our series to about 12 to 14 weeks. There is just no way that we can hit everything that is in a book in that amount of time. So my goal is to try to pick a a kind of thread, if you will. Having a little technical difficulties here. Let me get the scripture up for you. Is to pick a kind of thread within each one of these and, and take a look at it. So I'll be telling you a bit more about what we're going to be doing in this series in just a moment. But before we do that, I would like to actually read the text today together. So just so you know, we're starting in Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, We just covered a bunch of the chapters before when we were looking at the birth narratives of Jesus. Matthew has extensive birth narratives of Jesus. And again, I'll be telling you about why we're calling this series True Religion and what this is about. Is it working, Calvin? He's my controller. Okay, awesome. All right, so let's read Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. As I mentioned, this is a Sermon on the Mount, so Jesus is going to be the one speaking in all of this. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This text is really going to be a jumping off point for us as we go through this series the thread we're going to be following and looking at is how Jesus talks about the law, both the written law and the interpretation of that written law that is being passed around at the time of Jesus by these religious teachers, these scribes and these Pharisees, in the oral tradition, which is basically, you know, the teaching about how you fulfill all of these written laws. So Jesus, throughout Matthew's gospel is constantly being confronted with these situations where people are challenging on his, him and on his interpretation of the law. Also, there's many times when Jesus seems to poke and prod and bring this up. So this is what we're going to be looking at as we go through Matthew's Gospel. Let's read, as I mentioned, this verse, we're going to read this, the one I just read a few times, these first few weeks, to get us to hear it. And then we're going to look at how Jesus begins to interpret some of this. So verses 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body go to hell. It was said, that whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual unfaithfulness, forces her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we enter into these instructions that Jesus gave to us through his disciples and through those who are faithful in recording it, we come with a lot of questions. We know that much of the teaching we're going to be looking at is hard. But we're not concerned with whether it's hard or not. We're concerned with hearing the voice of your Holy Spirit clearly and understanding for today and for our lives. So that we may be faithful. We ask for your help with this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was a kid, and I was taught the Ten Commandments, which we find in Exodus 20, I learned really quickly, as many of us do, that this is at the heart of what we call the moral law of the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, which by the way, I think it might be helpful if we were actually to call it Jesus' Bible. That might help us. Because I think when we hear old, we think outdated, archaic. But this is the Bible of Jesus. These are the scriptures that were meaningful for Him. And actually, the word testament just means covenant. In the Old Testament, we read about God's old covenant with His people. In the New Testament, we read about the new covenant that was made through Jesus Christ. So when I was a kid, I learned that in the heart of the moral law of the Old Testament was this pillar called the Ten Commandments we find in Exodus 20. And as a kid, I remember going through these because this was important to me. I wanted God to be happy with me. And I'm going to talk to you as my thinking as a child now, how I thought through this. I remember going through these and saying, okay, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And I would go, okay, I don't even know any other gods. I don't even know what their names are. So I guess I'm good. Check that one off. One down. Number two, do not make an idol. I right? or a graven image. And I'm going, I don't know how to make one. And I don't ever really want one. So that's dumb. Check. Got it. Two down, right? Number three, God said you should not use my name in vain. And I go, well, okay, my friends, they, uh, they do that all the time, but me, I don't say those things. I say gosh and geez. So I never say God and Jesus. Check that one off. I'm good. I'm not using God's name in vain. Three down. Number four, God said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, well, I do have to deliver newspapers on Sunday morning. Uh, but I always make to church on time, and I don't do any work on Saturday or the rest of the day, so... Give yourself a half point, half check on that one. Number five, honor your mother and father. Uh Oh.
1: (laughs) I almost always obey.
0: I almost always obey them when they're telling me to do something, but not always. So, another half point, half check on that one. I'm pretty good. Okay. Number six, God said, You shall not murder. (sighs) Okay, no problem. (laughs) Haven't killed anyone yet. Thought about killing my brother and sister, but I'd never actually do it so check good there okay moving on number seven you should not commit adultery I have no idea what this is and my mom says it has to do with marriage I'm not married so whew. okay good on that one check that one off we'll worry about it later number eight God said you shall not steal hey no problem I'm not, not tempted by that I've got everything I need kind of I mean there's stuff I want but you know I don't steal so check that one off good oh, almost through number nine You shall not bear false witness. Well, my pastor says this one's lying. So I've done that. Dang it. First full strike. (laughs) Mark that one off. Okay. Number 10. God says you shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Hmm. Well, sometimes I do want the things my friends have. But I'm not sure that's as bad as coveting. Is it? I don't really think... I think I, I, I you know what I don't really want those things. I'm good. Not right now. Check that one off. Okay. Let's add them up. How'd I do? Um, one, two, three, three, three and a half, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight, that's like a B. Does God go on a per Because I think I knew a lot better than most people. That's pretty good. Alright. So that's how I felt as a kid when I approached God's moral law. That's how I looked at it. And of course, things got kind of complicated quick because I remember my friends and I having conversations like, um, and debates over the limits of some of these. Like, for example, when you're not supposed to lie, but what about a white lie? I mean, you know, if someone, if your mom says, do I look good today? I'm not sure I'm supposed to say, no, mom, you look terrible. You're overweight. And you know I mean? Like, I'm told I'm supposed to be polite. So, I mean, this is getting sticky, right? Trying to figure this out. What if it's gonna, what if what I say is gonna hurt someone's feelings or cause some problems? And if you lied to your parents, are you then actually breaking two commandments? Yikes, that could get you in hot water fast. But what if you found something that you, like on the ground, like a wallet or maybe some money and you kept it and you didn't try to find the owner? I mean, they lost it, is that stealing? And this whole murder thing, was it just don't murder or was it not don't kill? And then I had some friends who said, well, what about soldiers? Don't soldiers kill? Does that count? And what about animals? Is God just talking about people? Is God talking about animals? Are we supposed to be vegetarians? And It just got messy. And I thought, wow, this isn't as easy as I thought it was at first glance. What I love about Matthew's Gospel is that by the time... Jesus comes along, and he comes onto the scene. There's this massive oral tradition that's being passed around and interpreted by the religious leaders. And they're answering all of these questions. And they're giving the boundaries, and they're giving the guidelines, so that you didn't have to wonder, or at least you have someone who would tell you what was the law, and how it was supposed to be interpreted. Interpreted. And these religious teachers, they guarded this instruction, this teaching, and they tried to make sure that other good Jewish men and women and children obeyed it. And Jesus comes face to face with them and their interpretations of God's law, and He challenges their interpretation at every single turn. I think it's a really good check for us as Christians, as we think about how we interpret this thing that we call Scripture, Are we using the same kind of principles and the same kind of insight that Jesus gave to us? Or are we falling back into this pattern of wanting to make some really clear boundaries so we can say people have sinned or not sinned, they're in or they're out? I do want to challenge you to read Matthew in its entirety at some point during this series, as I always do. I think that's good practice, because as I mentioned, we're going to be focusing mostly on this one particular thread. There's a lot more good stuff in there, and it's important for understanding how Matthew understands Jesus and what he's commanding and what he's doing. I also want to make a note. We have the season of Lent coming up, which is this time before Easter. And this series is going to run through Lent. At one point I thought, you know, I'd like to jump into Matthew's stories on Jesus' arrest and trial. I'm not going to be doing that, because otherwise we'd be in Matthew for a very long time and we wouldn't really be able to look at all of these. So I'm still looking at some other options for doing some kind of a study for Lent for us, but it's not going to be happening on Sunday mornings. We will have a good Friday service, however, where we'll be reading some of those texts, many of those texts important things I want to note right away about Jesus' relationship to the law. And when I say law, I'm talking about the Old Testament. When the um, teachers of Jesus' day, or when Jesus referred to the law and the prophets, it was really a way of referring to the, the whole um, instruction of the Old Testament. There's some other books, the writings that... Um, kind of felt, you know, outside of those categories. But really, he's referring to all of it when he speaks about it. So there's three things I think are important for us to understand when we're talking about how Jesus relates to the law. Number one, we need to remember that the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. This is his scriptures. This is not something that Jesus ever takes lightly. In fact, we see him, the one instance we see him as a young child, we think he's probably debating these with the religious scholars in the temple. They're having an intense discussion. So we think that Jesus probably learned these from the time he was a young man. And we have access to Jesus' library in our Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? So when we want to understand and read the things that Jesus read, we can do that. And I want to say that because it's important that we don't simply dismiss the Old Testament as some bygone thing that we don't need to pay any attention to, that is irrelevant. So, number two, this goes along with it. Jesus says it right away in this verse that we just read. Jesus did not come to get rid of the Old Testament law. To abolish it. That's not what Jesus came to do. And this has been a temptation within the Christian church. From right after the time of Jesus. There were some really early controversies. And some arguments over this. There were people who would look at the Old Testament. And they would even claim. This looks like a totally different God altogether. In fact it is a different God. And there were some weird traditions that came out of that. And the church continually rejected those teachings. It is not easy to dig into the Old Testament. It is hard to understand it. This is the reason why I try to force myself to preach on it on a regular basis, because I believe, as Jesus taught, it is scripture, it's not going away. And if we want to understand Jesus in the fullness of the New Testament, we really have to get back into the Old Testament. He did not come to get rid of the Old Testament law. We believe as is taught in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. And remember when sec- when Timothy when this was written in 2 Timothy when he talked about scripture he was referring to the Old Testament. Now we include the New Testament with that. This is here what he said. Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting and for training character so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. And I've held on to that belief. If there's a scripture that's hard to understand, I I choose to dig into it and explore it and see how it connects in the context of all scripture rather than simply saying, I think I'll just forget that one. Every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching. And then finally, um, along the slides, that Jesus didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament, He came to fulfill it, he says, to fill it up, to complete it. There is a difference in the Old Testament between what we call ceremonial laws and moral law. The Old Testament, I mean, the the Ten Commandments are, as I said, at the heart of the moral law, teaching us how to relate to God and relate to others. The ceremonial law, which the Old Testament is full of, talks about things like how you should make a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice to God. How you can approach the temple... And, purity and a lot of ritual law. And we believe, as Jesus said, He didn't come to abolish that, but to fulfill it, to complete it. So as Christians, we believe when Jesus died on the cross, that we don't understand completely how His sacrifice was the once and for all sacrifice, that He fulfilled that purity law, the ritual law that we couldn't complete. He lived a perfect life. And fulfilled the moral law in the way that we could. not so he fulfilled that. So we don't have to figure out how to sacrifice animals today. That's why we don't do that. Not because Jesus got rid of it. But because he fulfilled it. He completed it. So the third thing that's important to understand about the Old Testament. As we come into this. Is that Jesus also didn't simply give us a twist. On the old laws. It could be tempting to. As we go into the Sermon on the Mount. And what we read today. To say that Jesus took the old laws. And he just somehow you know, tweaked them a little. That's not actually what he's doing. Again, the word is to fulfill, to fill them up. That there was something lacking that needed to be completed. And that's why Jesus is constantly at odds with others as he says, you're missing it. I want to explain to you what this means in its fullness and to fulfill it. And of course, he obeys them as well and that way, fulfills them. That word that's translated fulfill in our text, it's the same Greek word that's used for the resurrection. So you could interpret this and translate it and say, Jesus said, I came to resurrect the laws, to give them new life, to give them new meaning. And then he goes on in this sermon to talk about those. Okay, here comes the exciting part. I try to force myself to do this as a pastor, even though it's really tough, to talk about texts that just make me squirm and uncomfortable because they're really hard, and I could use 10 Sundays to work through them, But I want to just point out a few things in these two that I read about. And these laws both really have to revolve around the marriage relationship. And they have to do with adultery and divorce. I have to tell you a true story. Very first sermon, or talk, or whatever you want to call it, message I ever gave. I was a student at Whitworth University. I was doing an internship at a church down the road, and it was for youth ministry. And the youth pastor said, would you like to give the message to the kids. He did like mini sermons every week. I had, other than sharing about my mission trips when I was a a youth in my home church, I had never stood up in front of people and said, I'm going to teach you. We're going to read scripture and I'm going to teach you. Never done that. And it's good for my internship to do that. But he said, I'm doing this series and here's what I want you to teach on. Divorce. For my very first one. Divorce. I still can't believe it. I look back now. I was shocked at the time, but I thought, okay, he's got confidence in me. I can do this. I should also mention, my parents had just gotten divorced within that year. So this was totally not good. And I still think about the things I said and say, God, I'm grateful that you're more powerful than I am because you must have stopped the years of those kids. Because <laughs> the things I taught surely were not your word, though I tried my best. I still don't get excited about teaching on this, this is so hard. Um, And I also have to say, actually no, I've stalled enough, let's get into it, (laughs) okay, (laughs) adultery. Adultery has often been narrowly interpreted interpreted as sex outside of marriage, and so this is what Jesus is encountering as he goes to talk to them. if you do that, then you, you, know, you have to decide, well, how far is too far? And this is the big thing, when I taught youth ministry, they always wanted to know this question. When it came to sexual purity, because if you translate this uh, properly, and even back then they would say, this also applies to those who haven't been married, because someday you're gonna be married, so you need to be sexually faithful before marriage. So they always wanted to know, how far can you go physically before you cross some line? And cross some boundary, and if you're going to narrowly interpret this in this way, these are the kind of things you have to figure out. You can even make a whole massive group of laws that have to do with you know physical touch and all those kinds of things. What does Jesus do, though? Jesus uses this pattern throughout this sermon, and this is really the same kind of pattern he's going to use throughout Matthew. And he basically says, "You've heard it said, or it is written," and then he says the law not commit adultery. And he says, but I am telling you, here's the authority here that Jesus is speaking with, and this is part of what rubbed the religious teachers the wrong way entirely. Who is he that he has authority to speak in this way? We know who he is. And so for us, it carries a lot of weight when Jesus said, I say to you, so you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you. Every man who's looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And in one fell swoop, Jesus labeled every man, probably just about every woman on earth, as an adulterer. It's shocking. I'm sure no one was cheering and clapping when Jesus gives his interpretation. They're thinking, these religious teachers are pretty strict and they're pretty hard, but what? Did I hear that Right? The evidence we have is that this law, as Jesus was um, engaging in this law of adultery, that this law was very unevenly applied in Jesus' time. It was applied very heavily on women and very loosely on men. We actually see evidence of this in the Gospels when Jesus encounters the woman caught in adultery. Remember that story? And, and Jesus says, whoever is not guilty, you throw the first stone, because they say the law says we should stone her. And the oldest ones drop their stones first, and pretty soon everyone walks away. Where is the man? Have you ever wondered that? You can't, I mean, adultery takes more than one here. Where's the man? And so every evidence we have is that this was unevenly applied in Jesus' time. And so Jesus gets to the heart of it. He he explains that this law is not about just crossing some line physically. This law is about what's happening in people's hearts. As I said, every single person when they're honest with themselves and they hear Jesus say that, they're going, Jesus is saying I'm guilty of adultery. Everyone's a lawbreaker. So if you want to be obedient, then you have to understand what's behind your sin. Jesus points to the heart. In this case, it's not just, and he's hes talking directly to men here, it's not just looking at a woman and gazing at her, but the word that Jesus is using here is this idea that you're looking in order to lust. There's a purpose behind what is going on. You see, it's... Looking in a way that the person you're looking at becomes an object. They're no longer a human being. There's something being used for your pleasure. And then Jesus, of course, goes on to make us even more uncomfortable by talking about how we should gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands if any of these things cause us to sin. And if you are in the habit of interpreting every single thing in the Bible, and this is where I just really struggle sometimes with my fellow preachers, when they would decide to say, take some passages, so literally, and then they come to ones like this, I have not met a lot of stumpy Christians. So clearly, they are not obeying this one. Right? I mean, is your eye ever caused you to sin? Or your hand ever caused you to sin? How come we still have them then? Are we simply disobedient? Well, because we know that Jesus is making an extreme statement here for an extreme purpose. He's saying, this is so serious. I want you to hear me on this. It's not just about crossing some physical line. There's something in your heart, and if it's causing you to sin in this way, you just need to cut it out. And the thing I loved that I heard as a young man that was so helpful for me was my youth pastor, and he always liked to use the story of Joseph, when Joseph was tempted in Egypt, and he ran away and left his clothes behind. And my youth pastor just said, Jesus is saying here, just run the other direction. Don't even give it the time of day. This is how serious you have to take this then he goes on to teach about divorce. And the letter of the law said that men could divorce their wives. The Old Testament law, kind of. This comes from Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, and here's what it says. This is from the Old Testament that they're quoting. Let's say a man marries a woman, but she isn't pleasing to him because he's discovered something inappropriate about her. So he writes up divorce papers, hands them to her, and sends her out of his house. She leaves his house and ends up marrying someone else. But this new husband also dislikes her, writes up divorce papers, hands them to her, and sends her out of his house. Or suppose the second husband dies. In this case, the first husband, who originally divorced this woman, is not allowed to take her back and marry her again after she has been polluted in this way because the Lord detests that. Don't pollute the land, and the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Again, this is one of those passages that maybe a lot of us would like to say, let's just get rid of the Old Testament. This sounds really terrible. But I think what's key to understanding the Old Testament is understanding first the culture and how people are being treated. And in this case, you see what's happening is that a woman is being divorced because her husband doesn't like something about her. It clearly says that, right? And then so, she marries another man because, and these ancient cultures... You, you needed to be, if you were a woman, in t- some kind of a family relationship for protection, for, for um, you know, work, I mean, we call it work, but financial stability, for social standing, for all these reasons. I mean, this is how these cultures operated. And so she's being passed around, and the law is actually not talking about divorce so much as it's saying, that first husband can't just decide he wants to take her back. That's not, that's <laughs> off the table. And so, you can look at this a lot of different ways, and we're not going to dig into this text a ton, because we want to look, we're want more concerned with what Jesus is doing with it. But I just want to point out, does it actually say that God allows divorce? It just says, let's suppose a man gives a woman a divorce certificate. So, the legal experts were looking to whether divorce was legal. There's nothing else there except for this in the Old Testament. So they go, okay, yeah, you can divorce your wives. And so there was a debate going on with the religious teachers of Jesus' day. Some were saying, it's clear from the law that if you're a man, you can divorce your, your wife, and women weren't allowed to do this. But if you're a man, you can divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever, including if she, you don't like her cooking or her housework. I mean, this is actually, we have written records of this kind of debate going on. And there were other rabbis on the other side who were saying, oh, no, 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 no. It's much more narrow than that. When it's talking about displeasing him, it's talking about something where she's not being faithful sexually. So this is the kind of debate that was going on, and Jesus clearly lands on the very narrow, conservative interpretation of this. And again, what is Jesus doing? We believe that Jesus, as he engages these laws, he's revealing God's heart. And so it's safe for us to say, and and I also, excuse me, I've got to back up. There's a much more thorough discussion of this in Matthew 19. As we go through Matthew, we're not going to be looking at Matthew 19, but I encourage you to go there if you want to see it. Because in that that one, Jesus explains in more detail. He says that Moses only allowed people to get divorced because their hearts were hard. And then he also says that a man should not have divorced a woman, except for the case of unfaithfulness, implying sexual unfaithfulness. The Greek word is porneia or we get our word for pornography, okay? That would be the only case. You know what the disciples said when Jesus taught them this? They said, well, in that case, it would be better not to get married. That was their response. So you can see the cultural thinking. Jesus is saying, you shouldn't divorce them for any reason, but only in the most extreme case. And the disciples look at that and go, well, if that's true, then I think I'll just stay single. And Jesus says, this is the hardness of your heart. Here is God's heart in this that Jesus is revealing. Divorce should be a last resort. Something not to be done out of convenience in a marriage. The second thing Jesus does is that he's protecting women. There's there's really no way around this when we look at the language that Jesus is using here. Now in the the Greek culture that Paul's going to enter into, women were much more free to divorce their husbands. But in the in the Jewish culture still, this was not something that was generally accepted or allowed. And so Jesus is saying to the men, "You need to remain faithful. You can't just get rid of a woman because you don't like her or something makes you unhappy." And also, we, as I mentioned, the, the standing in society, uh, a woman who had been married and divorced was was simply seen as as being damaged goods. And so, when Jesus says that if you remarry this woman, you're committing adultery, again, it's a really hard thing for us to to hear, and we could go into how we interpret all this, but the understanding here is that these women were sometimes passed around, because they were seen as almost disposable at this point. So I believe Jesus is protecting women here. Third thing Jesus does is, as I mentioned, He doesn't permit, permit remarriage to a divorced woman. And this is confusing, it's much debated among Christian scholars and how to understand this. But the, clearly the emphasis again, if we go big picture which is what Jesus is trying to do, the emphasis is on the sanctity of marriage and God's heart for that. And so, this is hard. Paul Paul will later make it clear, so this is also in our scriptures. That there is room for divorce if a believer is in a relationship with an unbeliever. And that they may also remarry. So clearly there is, the, as the church develops, there, there are exceptions to this. And we understand this today. And I just have to say, okay, here, in this sermon, to go into the nuances of this is way too much. And it needs to be done on a pastoral level. This is a very hurtful thing to talk about in a large group. Many of us have experienced this through our parents, or through our marriages, or in many indirect ways, or friends. We understand the emotional weight that this carries. And so I am making myself available to you as a pastor. I'm happy to talk to you in more detail about these things. The real sad part here, though, and this is what we need to hear, I believe. The real sad part here is that those who had a real legalistic framework of how God worked in Jesus' time They were debating about whether men should be allowed to divorce their wives for any reasons, or just for specific reasons. And then Jesus gives them the bigger, broader context, doesn't He, and God's desire for divorce, for people to be, or for marriage, for people to stay together. But what's happened over time is that then Christians, many Christians have jumped on Jesus' command and said, oh, now we have a new law, and they begin to use it and apply it in the exact same way that these scholars were doing as a way to force in most of our Christian history, women, and occasionally men, to remain in abusive marriages, to remain in marriages where a couple is all but divorced, but they're just lacking the paperwork. And so it becomes almost more hard than what Jesus was originally confronting. So, I believe that one of the things that God is speaking to us about is we look at these very tough laws and Jesus' interpretation on them, is that if we focus simply on what's allowed and what's not allowed, if we say, Where's, what's the letter of the law so I can know whether I'm in the right or I'm in the wrong, we begin to take a legalistic mindset to purity and to marriage, and we're in danger of missing God's heart of why He gave these in the first place. God has always desired that marriage be protected at all costs, and that two people would love each other sacrificially. I love to use Ephesians 5 when I do marriages, because people have used it to abuse women for so many years. If you look at Ephesians 5, it starts off by saying that men and women should submit to one another. That's how God wants a marriage to work, that it would be mutual sacrifice, and he, Paul uses Jesus' life as an example. Whenever we begin to treat other people as an object from which we can get something or an object from which we can discard when it's no longer useful, rather than a unique human being who's created in God's image, that's when we sin. When we're talking about adultery when we're talking about divorce, I believe this is what God's <clears throat> heart is. Behind the, the, the things that happen, the certificates that are written, or the, the lust that happens, is underneath of that is when we're treating other people as objects for our own purposes, and then we're getting rid of them. And that is not God's heart for people. And finally, how can we even talk about this this morning? I wouldn't have even touched it if it wasn't for the fact that we know the whole story and we know who Jesus is. We know how he fulfilled the law when he died on that cross. When he gave up his life for us. Because we know that in Jesus, while he reveals that there's sin in all of us, none of us are good. And that there's sin in our social institutions even, like marriage and divorce and the way we approach them. He reveals that to us, but he also gives up his life so that we might be forgiven and so that we might have life. Not just so that we can go back and say, okay, Jesus died for me. Now I'm at 10 out of 10 again for today, for now, until I mess up again. It wasn't just for that. But it was so that we could experience that power of resurrection where we thought there was only death. And this applies to these things that Jesus is talking about today. We can experience the power of resurrection where we look and see only death. This is the good news. Let's pray. God, I have a feeling that if I live long enough, I will look back on this sermon and say I was just as naive as I was when I was a young man speaking to a youth group. Thankfully, God, we have your Holy Spirit. And we trust your Holy Spirit to work in us as we hear these scriptures. Where there is confusion, I pray that you would give us clarity. Where there is hurt and pain, I pray that you would bring healing to Where there is sin and death, we ask for you to bring life because we believe you are the one who can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.